Thank you very much. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Abby and Maddie are two of our upperclassmen in the student ministry. I was shocked when Abby said she would read. Very grateful for that. And then uh, she also threw Maddie under the bus and said, Maddie, I'm reading, you're reading with me. So thank you. I uh, appreciate that. Hey, uh, as Michael said, my name's Hunter. I'm the student pastor here at Double Oak Chelsea. Um, and if you're not already there in your Bibles, Joshua 6 is where we will be. Uh, Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Uh, and we are in between two of our sermon series right now. Uh, we just wrapped up uh, the past six weeks looking at the Holy Spirit uh, in our series called Living in the Spirit. Uh, who the Holy Spirit is, namely that he's, he's God. He's the third member of the Trinity. He's worthy to be worshipped and praised and to lead us as his people. Uh, and we also looked at how he, man, by the, the work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, raising us to walk in newness of life, to follow after him, to be sons and daughters of God. And how he gifts all of us, if we're believers in Jesus, he gifts all of us with certain and specific giftings, not for ourselves, but for the local church body and for our community and those who are far from, far from Christ who would hopefully, by God's grace, be brought near. And so we just got done studying uh, some of those things. And then if you've been around Double Oak for any time, uh, you know summertime rolls around and we jump into the Old Testament. Uh, and I love the Old Testament. We're going to talk about it some in a little bit, but Christ is on every page. Every page of the scriptures. Uh, we have the luxury of being on this side of, uh, of, of the cross. We get to see the entirety of the canon of scripture, Old and New Testament, uh, through the lens of Jesus. Through the lens of the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And so we get to see Christ in Joshua 6, 1-7. through 7, And that's what we're going to do this morning. So if you're not there, uh, I hope you're there. It's a sixth book in the Bible. The table of contents is your friend. Um, No shame in that, but it'll be on the screen as well. I'm going to read this for us again. We're going to dive in. So look with me, starting in verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let the seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God's economy is upside down. God's economy is upside down. And when I say economy, I don't mean Uh, Wall Street, I don't mean microeconomics. I had to take that twice in college, so it would be very ill will of me to talk about that in front of people after having taken it two times. Um, I don't mean capitalism. I don't mean socialism. I don't mean any form of, of government. I mean in God's realm, in God's kingdom, the way that God does things and why God does those things, it's upside down, at least to you and to me. Because you and I live in a world that is broken and marred and cracked and busted up by sin, by disobedience, by rebellion towards God. And everything that we see, 
is abnormal. To God, the way that he does things is normal. But to us, it just looks like the way that he does things, the why that he does things, it just seems completely backwards. And we see this, we encounter this in, in Joshua chapter 6. Now, if you're familiar with the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, you'll be familiar with the story of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, up to this point in the scriptures. Uh, all of this, most of this has been chronological. Uh, it's been very helpful in that way. Uh, but just in case you're not familiar with it, that's okay. We're going to have a quick refresher. Uh, starting in the book of Genesis, in chapter 12, God encounters a man named Abraham. And he calls Abraham and his entire family to pack up their stuff and to go. And God will tell them when to stop. And God makes a covenant with him. He makes a promise that binding himself to Abraham. And he says, through you... All the nations of the world will be blessed. What he's saying there is, through your children, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through that nation, I'm going to bless all the other nations of the world. Now, this seems cool, besides the fact that Abraham and his wife Sarah are about 75. And there's one passage in Genesis where Sarah kind of like chuckles when she hears God telling Abraham this. And God's like, what's up? I'm not kidding. Uh, and so like about 25 years later... Uh, they end up having a son named Isaac. And in Genesis 15 and 17, God reminds Abraham of this covenant, but he also adds a second part to it. Not only will he make a great nation through his offspring, that one will come from this line of Abraham to redeem all the nations of the world. Through, through him, all the nations will be blessed. Not only that, but God has also promised them a big piece of land that's flowing with milk and honey, that's prosperous, that's good for them to dwell in. And that's where we get the phrase, the promised land, right? It's not just in the Prince of Egypt. It's one of my favorite Disney Pixar movies. Love that one. Uh, love the soundtrack from it. But uh, the promised land it was something that God gave his people. Uh, and so in Genesis 15 and 17, God reminds and doubles down on his promises, binding himself with Abraham and his line of uh, family members. So Abraham and his wife Sarah have Isaac. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, have Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the one that God chooses to pass the line of Abraham down through, even though Jacob is the youngest. Uh, and then in one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Genesis 32 through 35, really weird, really crazy. It's wild. Uh, but Jacob wrestles with God. Uh, and in this encounter that Jacob has, he has a name change. He goes from being called Jacob, which means deceiver or thief, to being called Israel, which means one who struggles with God and has prevailed. And this is where we get the nation of Israel from. It's not just a, a certain drawing on a map. Israel is a people. It's the people from Abraham. It's God's people. And so because of a great famine at the end of Genesis, uh, all of Israel's people, they move to Egypt. And they are very fruitful, and they multiply a whole lot. And uh, because of this, because of how great in size this nation of people, the Israelites have become, one of the pharaohs there in Egypt is afraid that they'll overtake the Egyptians, and so he enslaves them. And they're enslaved for about 400 years. And through God's servant Moses, God redeems and rescues Israel out of their physical slavery and bondage to send them and lead them into the promised land. And they wander around the desert for 40 years because of their disobedience over and over and over and over and over and running off to false gods and rebelling against God. And so because of this, 
Moses included, this entire generation will not enter into the promised land. So they are to wander around the desert until this entire generation dies off. And now that this generation has died off, we get to the end of Deuteronomy, which is Moses' last words he's going to say to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy is one big, long, giant speech. And then God, in his kindness, takes Moses up to a very top of a mountain, lets him see the promised land. Moses dies. He's buried. And then Joshua, Moses' successor, leads the nation of Israel into the promised land. We enter into Joshua in chapters 1 through 5. God constantly reminds him, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. I am with you. Be of good courage. Take heart. Do not fear. Remember what you have seen me do. Remember how I rescued you out of the nation of Egypt. Remember that you didn't do it, but I did it. Remember that I'm going to be with you as I lead you into this promised land. As you go and fight your enemies, I'm going to be the one who fights for you. I'm the one who prevails for you on your behalf. And so we pick up here in Joshua 6, 1 through 7, and it seems like what God is asking the nation of Israel to do is just outlandish. If, like, if you think about it, right, like this is, this is Jericho, right? Like the, the doors are shut, uh, the way is shut, uh, there is no way in, there is no way out. And God looks at them, instead of saying, hey, go lay siege to this city, go attack this city, he says, I want you to get all of your priests and your religious leaders, and I want you to go march around the city once a day for six days in a row. And then on the seventh day, I want you to do that seven times. And then I want you to blow on some trumpets. It just seems weird, right? Like, and it's okay to say that it's weird because it's weird, right? Like the Bible is beautiful and wonderful and weird and strange. And it's how God is communicating to his people. But this seems upside down. It seems like this, like this ragtag group of nomads that have been wandering around for the entirety of their lives. Like, if they have God with them, why don't they just go and fight the city and they can topple it down, right? This is the same city that we sang about in VBS, about the walls of Jericho that came tumbling down, right? Same city. And you would think from a military uh, perspective, right? Like, it's so much easier... Um, to just like attack them, or if the doors are shut, if the way is shut in and out of the city, just to lay siege and starve them out. That'd be easy. But God says, no, I want you to go march around the city, maybe with a couple military personnel here and there, but predominantly I want you to be led by your priests and your religious leaders. And this seems just completely wrong because from a battleship perspective, like if you are, it's so much easier to fight down on your enemy than it is to fight up. And they're going to be walking around completely exposed, completely vulnerable to their enemy. And it seems upside down. And the question we have to ask and the question that has to be answered is, why does God ask them to do this? Why does he command them to go and do this? And a man named Paul Tripp in his uh, devotional called New Morning Mercies, what myself and the Chelsea staff were going through together on a daily basis uh, it's where I, I pulled this, this section of scripture from one of the days it really jumped out at me, man. Uh, and, and Paul Tripp says this about what God is asking Israel to do. He says, the children of Israel had entered the promised land, but lest they forget who they were and what they had been given, God put a trial in front of them that would powerfully demonstrate his glory and grace, which he was willing to exercise for their salvation. As they walked around Jericho, God was confronting Israel with their inability, vulnerability, and dependency. 
where you and I think that Israel should just sprint at this city and overtake it, where you and I in this culture that we've been raised up in that all of us have been influenced by, that says, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, wipe the dirt off your face, get going, go earn everything that you want, go do it all on your own, don't ask for help, where we think that by brute force and human strength and creativity and ingenuity we can get by, God says, not in my kingdom. God says, we don't do that in my economy. The way that I do things are different. Why? Because Israel, God in his loving kindness, is confronting them with their inability, their vulnerability, and their neediness. And where we think that we can just get by on our own, God says it does not work that way with my people. Now, one of my and my wife, Hannah, one of our favorite shows is a show called New Girl. Anybody watch New Girl? Right? Okay. Uh, okay. Not as many hands as last time. Uh, but it's okay. Love the show New Girl. Uh, one of our favorites. We've watched all six or seven seasons probably 50 times, and I'm not exaggerating. That's not hyperbolic. We, we love it that much. Uh, but there's one particular character in this show, and his name is Nick Miller. And Nick Miller is a grumpy young man. And uh, I, he's my favorite and also my least favorite because I am Nick Miller. Uh, I'm a grumpy young man, and my wife, every once in a while, has to very lovingly and kindly remind me that, hey, you're being a real grumpy young man right now, and you need to chill, right? I think a lot of that has to do with, I got some anger going on, and I got to work on that, but I, I'm also an only child, and so I got all these only child-like tendencies, right? Everything is mine. Everything exists for me. It's all mine, and my wife is one of six kids, and so you can imagine just the, the, the love that happens when, like, I want the last Pop-Tart or, like, I want the last bowl of cereal, right? Because in her household, it was everybody gets a little bit of everything, and in mine, it was mine, right? Like, it's all mine. I'm an only child. The world revolves around me, and that has caused me to be a grumpy young man, right? Because not everything goes my way. And there's this one particular scene in an episode of New Girl where Nick Miller's friends are confronting him with the fact that he is a grumpy young man, and it flashes back to a moment where he walks up to the bank or to the DMV, and he goes to open the door, and he goes to push it, and it doesn't open, right? And we've all been there, right? You try to push a door, and you're like, oh, like what's wrong? And he looks down, and it says, pull. And there's no one else around him. It's just him and a door. And he says, I will push if I want to push. And he throws his shoulder into it, and he like puts his entire body weight behind it, and he keeps trying to push and trying to push and trying to push, right? And like I do that all the time. You and I do that all the time, right? But like this is, like, this is what God is trying to lovingly and kindly point out to you and I, that God's kingdom is not a push. It's a pull. It's not the way that you and I want it to be done. It's not how we think it should work. To us, God's kingdom and his economy and how he does things is upside down to us. And no amount of human strength, no amount of force, no amount of ingenuity can earn our way into the kingdom of God. No amount of thinking that we're fine by ourselves can get us into the kingdom. That doesn't work in God's kingdom. Why? Why doesn't it? I wish it worked that way. I'm really good at being by myself. I'm really good at doing things by myself. I hate asking for help. I know I'm not the only person in this room that struggles with that. 
But God in his kindness, just as he confronts Israel with their weakness, their inability, and their neediness, he confronts you and me with that today as well. Because in God's kingdom, weakness is not weakness. Weakness is strength. In God's kingdom, the way up is down. In God's kingdom, being weak is not looked down upon. Being weak is the way. And you might say, why? That doesn't make any sense. I don't like that. I don't like it either. I love to do things by myself. Like I said, I'm an only child. I'm, I'm good functioning alone. I'm good functioning by myself without anybody's help. I'm good putting on an image and being strong. Or so I think. But in God's kingdom, weakness is not weakness. It is a strength. God's loving kindness, he confronts Israel with their neediness when they're outside of the city of Jericho. And he doesn't say, go and just lay waste to this city. He says, I, I want you to go and to march around the city. I want you to go and lead this religious processional, this ritual ceremony around the city. I don't want you to go sling rocks at it. I don't want you to go try to beat the doors down. I don't want you to sling some bows and arrows up there. I want you to go and walk. Why? Because in God's kingdom, in God's loving kindness, he's asking us to be vulnerable. To admit the fact that we're weak and God is not. To be okay with the fact that we cannot help ourselves. We can't. It doesn't work like that in God's kingdom. God is asking Israel here to be vulnerable. Vulnerable, yes, towards their enemies, because as you're walking down, like I said earlier, it's easier to fight down on your opponent than it is to fight up. They're, they're super exposed. They're out in the open. They've got a couple military personnel scattered around them. But besides that, man, they can all just be bam, bam, gone. He's asking them to be vulnerable and trust him in that. But he's also asking for vulnerability with him as well. To trust him. Not their own strength, not their own power, not their own might. Intimacy with God requires vulnerability. It requires it. How do you get to know someone if you're not vulnerable? How does someone get to know you if they're not vulnerable? It requires it. And on a much grander level, intimacy with God is required in his kingdom. It, it, vulnerability is required. It, it's, it's, it's admitting and humbling ourselves to the fact that we are weak and God is not. That we are weak and God is not. And that weakness is good. Weakness is good. And Israel's recognition of their weakness and their obedience to what God has told them to do is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. We see in verses 6 and 7 that Joshua receives what God has told him and he communicates it to the nation of Israel and they're obedient. But this isn't a blind faith. It's not a blind faith. Following after Jesus is not blind. We don't do it just blindly. The nation of Israel didn't. Why? Because they have seen, they have empirical evidence. Like in a court, like all this evidence would just be overwhelming to support the fact that God loves his people and that he's going to do what he says he's going to do and he's going to take care of his kids. They saw it in Egypt with all of the plagues. They saw it in the wilderness when they were wandering around the desert when God made bread rain from the sky and he gave them quail to eat. And he looked at Moses and said, hey, Moses, take your staff and hit a rock with it and water's going to gush out so none of you are going to thirst to death. 
They've seen all of these miraculous things happen, but also they've seen God in the mundane in their lives as well, taking care of them. So why would they not just believe him? All God is asking of his people Israel here as he confronts them with their neediness and their weakness is to simply believe. That's it. Believe. That's what God confronts you and me with today. Believe. Believe what? Believe that I am who I say that I am. Believe that I'm going to take care of my children. I always will. Even if it doesn't look like it, I'm going to. One of the commentaries I read about them marching around the city said this. That God's instruction to Joshua about the taking of Jericho contains no reference to military strategy, but rather it indicates that it's essentially to be a ritual ceremony. God's words consist of an encouraging assurance to Joshua, instructions for Israel's part in the episode, and a statement about the amazing results. And the ritual nature of the episode is suggested by the absence of any military strategy. There's not an ounce of military strategy going on. There's not an ounce of, hey, we can like kind of pinch them here. We can go up or down or do this or that. God is basically asking Israel to just go and march. To just go and march, right? Israel plays no role in the taking of Jericho. If you look back in verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with his kings and mighty men of valor. He's like Babe Ruth. He calls a shot before it even happens. God says, this is what's going to happen. I need you to do this. And Israel went and did it. Israel played no role in making the walls fall down. Their trumpet blast did not make the walls fall down. God did. And look, man, all throughout Scripture, like there, there are numbers everywhere, right? And numbers are symbolic in the Scriptures. The number seven is just littered throughout these seven verses here, just time after time after time. This number seven it, in the Scriptures it does a couple things. Uh, it, it, it symbolizes the number of totality, completion, and perfection. right? And the fact that it's used so much in this account, specifically verse 4, seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of rams, one before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the, tree, the priests shall blow the trumpets. This number, the, the predominance of this number here is emphasizing the completeness of God's victory on Israel's behalf. God here is saying, the, as these scriptures are being recorded for you and I to read this, it's just doing nothing but blatantly pointing out that Israel had no part in their victory. Zero. None. That it's completely and perfectly God's victory on his people's behalf. Why? Because they're weak and they're needy and they're dependent. And they can't do anything on their own. And you and I are the exact same way. In God's economy, it's okay to be weak. It's welcomed. It is welcomed. It's almost a prerequisite for us to enter into God's kingdom, to admit that we need saving, to admit that we're weak and vulnerable and cannot conquer this thing in our life called sin on our own. And as we read the, the scriptures, as we uh, look at the scriptures, we mentioned earlier about seeing Jesus on every page. That as we're on this side of the cross, we're able to view the scriptures in a very Christ-like way. Through a, through a pair of glasses, through a pair of Jesus glasses. And we get to see Jesus on every page of the story because this is not just a bunch of rules for you and I to follow. It's not just a bunch of, hey, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. If you do it, I'll slap your wrist. Like, that's not who God is. This is a story. It's God conveying through 66 books combined into the holy canon of scriptures who he is, and how much he loves his people. It's a story. 
And God is inviting his people into his story, albeit it seems upside down to us. But as we look at this, Joshua 6, 1 through 7 is nothing but a big signpost. It's nothing but an arrow pointing us towards a greater deliverance, a greater victory that we have got to win, but we can't win on our own. We are the nation of Israel. When you read the Old Testament, you should read it like a mirror. You should see yourself, right? A lot of times I read this and I go, man, these people are the worst, right? Like, gosh, they did this and this and this. And then I, I get hit by like a holy two by four across the head by the Holy Spirit. And it's like, hey, you're the worst too, man. Like, hey, what about yesterday? What about last week? What about last month, right? Like, it's a mirror. We are them. You and I are them. Nothing's changed. Just because we got TVs and smartphones doesn't make us any better. We can just like see if it's going to rain tomorrow or not, right? Like they didn't know that. Thank you. <laughs> Michael, I totally understand. When, you're, when, when your jokes don't land, man, it's tough. It's a bummer. It's no joke, man. You guys are like middle schoolers just staring at me, not giving me any response. Looking at you, middle schoolers. Um, but here's the deal, man. This it's, it's two things. It's a mirror. We get to see our own reflection, our own sinfulness, our own weakness, our own vulnerability in this text. But we also get to see the glory and the grandeur and the grace of God and how great of a God that he is, like the songs that we just sang, that this is symbolizing, it's a shadow, it's pointing us to a greater deliverance. It's pointing us to a greater victory that God will win on your behalf and mine. It's a victory over sin, and it's won through Jesus. And if you will, flip with me to John chapter 16. It'll be on the screen. John chapter 16 is, is almost a parallel passage for this. Jesus here is, is eating the last Passover with his, with his 12. And he is, this is like a big discourse in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. Before they go out into the garden and uh, Jesus is arrested. He's wrongfully beaten and tortured and crucified and murdered. And Jesus here is, is telling uh, his, his disciples a couple of things. One, he's going away, and where he's going, they can't come. And this freaks them out a little bit. Two, he's, where he's going, he's going to prepare a place for them. Three, he will return. He will return to them. In John chapter 14, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come for you. He also tells, he also tells them and he tells us, uh, if the world hates you because of following after me, it's not really you that hate. It's really me that hate. They hated me first, so of course they're going to hate you. Right? Then he, then he tries to, like, good news, bad news, sandwich that, that, like, kind of a Debbie Downer of information with, like, hey, also, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. Right? Like, it is better for me to physically leave and to send the helper, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, to be in the hearts and the lives of my people. And then he ends this discourse as we get into uh, 16, verse 33. He tells the disciples that they are going to desert him. They're going to abandon him. When Jesus is arrested, they're going to scatter and they're going to disown him. And this is a lot to take in. It's like drinking from a fire hose. It's a ton of information and a lot of it's depressing. And Jesus says this in John 16, verse 33. He's talking to his disciples. He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. 
Jesus here is doing something very similar to what his father did in Joshua chapter 6. Jesus says, I've, I've told these things to you so that in me you might have peace. I'm going to, peace? People are going to hate me. People are going to persecute me. I'm going to desert you? I'm going to be a coward and run? How is that supposed to give me peace? You're leaving us? We can't follow you there? How am I supposed to be at peace? It seems upside down. It seems backwards, just like God the Father has done in Joshua chapter 6. And God the Son seems to be following suit. But don't miss the main thrust and the main point of this verse, of this passage. Jesus doesn't say, in, my, in these things that I say you will have peace. What does he say? He says, in me you will have peace. I've told you all these things. Not these things will give you peace because some of them are pretty depressing and sad. Some of them are awesome. But I've said these things to you so that in me you will have peace. He's doing the exact same thing his father did in Joshua 6 with the nation of Israel. God in his kindness confronts Israel with their inability, their total dependence, and their total neediness. And Jesus does this with the 12 up in this room with him at the last Passover. He tells them, you're going to scatter. I know what you're going to do. Like, I'm God. I know. Of course I know what you're going to do. He says, I know that people are going to hate you. I mean, guys, like, if Jesus is God, and he is, like, he knows that shortly after his death, his resurrection, and his ascension back to the, the right hand of the Father, he knows that most of these 12 in this room are going to die for following after him. They're going to be martyred. Really gruesome ways, crucified, speared to death, pushed off a tall building, and then stoned because you didn't die from the building. It's like a terribly inefficient way to like kill somebody. I don't know, man. Like, it's weird. Uh, but, th but then John, like John, the author of this gospel, they try to kill him. They try to boil him alive. It doesn't work. Don't know how that didn't work. So then they just exile him to an island called Patmos, just a rocky outcrop of an island where he is to live out the rest of his days. Jesus knows that all of these things are going to happen. And he, in his kindness, is confronting their weakness and their neediness and saying, I know that you're weak and I know that you're going to run. I know that you're weak and I know that it's going to be really difficult and it's, you're going to have trouble and the world's going to hate you and I'm leaving you and where I'm going, you can't come. But I will come back for you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave my people that way. Jesus knows their weakness and their neediness. So he says to them at the end of verse 33, in this world you will have tribulation or in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He says, I have overcome the world. And he says, take heart. What does it mean to take heart? Right? That seems like a really churchy type of thing to say. It's like, dang, man, it feels like you put an E on the end of that thing and like you churched it up really, really hard. Right? Like what does Jesus mean when he says these words? He means the same thing that his father said to Joshua when he tells him to go and march around the walls. It's a command. It's given in the imperative sense to go and do these things, to do this, to actively do this, not passively, not sit back and let it come to you, not let someone else do it for you, but to do this. It's active. He says, take heart. And just like he says in Joshua chapter 1 that we talked about a little while ago, uh, God the Father looks at Joshua and says, be of good courage. Take heart. Do not fear. I will be with you. When Jesus says take heart, it can be translated from the original languages into English as take heart, 
as, as take courage, as to be of good courage, as don't fear. It's the exact same message that God has been preaching to his people throughout eternity. If you're my people, I'm with you. And I'll never leave you. You're weak and you're needy, but that's a prereq in my kingdom and I welcome it because I'm the only one that can save you. And Jesus says that here to his 12 and he says it to you and me to be of good courage that when fearful things come, when doubt, when anxiety, when depression, when all these other things are like, look, I'm saying like all of us struggle with that because I struggle with that. I'm not saying it's bad to struggle with that. But Jesus looks at us in those moments and says, don't forget who I am. Take heart. Believe. That's it. Just believe. Just like God the Father did with the nation of Israel. I've already given it to you. I've already won the victory for you. I just need you to go and march around the walls. Jesus looks at his people, including us today, and he says, remember who I am. Remember when I saved you. Remember all the things, the miraculous and the mundane things that I've done in your life. Don't forget those. That is evidences of my grace in your life and evidences that I'm with you. Take heart. I'm always with you. It's a call to believe. That's it. <laughs> Not believe hard enough. Just believe. That's the gospel. Believe in Jesus. Believe upon the work that he has done for you, dying for our sins. Jesus overcame. He has victory over sin, not us. Simply believe. And as we read John 16, 33, in the world, the, the latter half in the world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. If you're, if you're like me, you read the last part of that verse and, and you see I've overcome the world. You ask how? How has Jesus overcome the world? Because honestly, like if you read the rest of the Gospel of John, it looks like the world overcame him. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was crucified and he was murdered. And it looks like the world overcame him. And in one commentary that I was using this week, it said this. Talking about Jesus saying, take heart, I've overcome the world. He says, this is ironic, for it would appear that the world overcame Jesus. After all, the Jewish leaders did succeed in having him crucified by the Romans, yet Jesus insisted that he had overcome the world. That begs the question we have to ask, how? In what way? In what sense? If Jesus is who he says he is, and he is insisting here that he has already overcome the world... Just as his father looked at Joshua and said, I've already overcome this city in front of you. How did he do it? He did it in this sense. In all the world's opposition, the world did not succeed in turning Jesus aside from what he came to do. To reveal the truth about God and the human condition. And to give his life that the world might be saved. Jesus' goal was not to ride in on some white humongous horse with a big old broadsword and just start chopping up Rome and toppling Rome and Rome's gone. That's what all of these first century Jewish men and women thought the Messiah was going to come do. They thought he was going to come and topple Rome and he was going to rule over them and life would just be awesome. But Jesus came in on a donkey. He came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And I said this in the first service, and I say it again. When I think of a donkey, I think of two things. Shrek, and I think of weakness. I don't look at a donkey and go, wow, man, you're, like, you're yoked. Right? Like, I look at a horse and go, that horse could kill me with one kick. 
right? I don't look at that when I see a donkey. He's just going to like neigh at me or hee-haw or whatever. And I'm just like, you don't scare me, man. But Jesus just, his MO is that I do things that seem weak to you, but they're not weak to him. In our lives of abnormality, that seems weak. But in God's realm, in God's kingdom, that's not abnormal, it's normal. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I didn't come to be propped up on a throne. I came to reveal the heart of God to my people and to show my people who they are. Weak, vulnerable, needy people in need of far greater deliverance than from the city of Jericho. We are in need of the greatest deliverance of all from sin, from evil that exists outside of us and evil that exists inside of us. This is why Jesus, when he taught his disciples how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he said, deliver us from evil. Lead me not into temptation. He also tells his disciples in the gospel accounts, because in Jewish culture, you couldn't eat certain things. If you ate certain things, they defiled you, they made you unclean. Jesus said, it's one of my favorite passages of scripture. Jesus said, what you put into your body does not make you unclean. You're already unclean. Like whatever food you eat doesn't make you unclean. And it said, thus he declared all foods clean. And I said, praise God, we can eat bacon. Right? Like... But Jesus came not just to rescue us from our external enemies like Jericho with Israel. He came to rescue us from ourselves. He came to rescue us from ourselves. You and I are full of sin. And we've been that way ever since we were born. And Jesus came to rescue you and give you victory. All you must do is believe. There's no pulling yourself up by your bootstraps here. No wiping the dirt off your face here. Jesus says, don't clean yourself up. You can't clean yourself up. I'm the only one that can clean you up. Come here. I love you. When Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world, he's saying, trust me. Believe that I am who I say that I am. Believe that I have come to do what I've set out to do, to show the heart of my Father to his people and to show my people their condition. Namely, that they're weak and needy and vulnerable, and I have come here to provide shelter and peace and salvation for them. That's what God did with his people back in Joshua 6 with Jericho, and in a far greater deliverance and victory for us today. The Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ when he got slung out there on that island called Patmos. All of these letters that he wrote... None of them are written with a defeatist mentality. None of them are written from a defeated perspective. All of them are written from a place of victory over sin and death. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. You go to John 21 at the end of his gospel account and he says, I've written these things to you so that you might believe Jesus is the Son of God. Not so that you can go do things, so that you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you can be just adopted into his family as his son or his daughter. Weakness in God's economy is not weakness, it's strength. It's strength. And Paul Tripp, he says this. He says, it's never hopeless and you're never helpless if Emmanuel, if God with us, has invaded your life with his glory and grace. You are never hopeless and you are never helpless if Jesus, the Son of God, God himself in the flesh, has invaded your life. Why? Because he's always with you. He's never going to leave you. 
So take heart, believe, be of good courage, trust him because of the miraculous things you've seen that he's done in your life and also in the mundane where he's invaded the mundane areas of your life because he's in both. Believe, take heart, God is with you. It's not hopeless, it's not helpless, trust him. The battle is not yours, it is his. He wins the victory for his people because of how good of a God and how good of a lover that he is to his kids. Pray with me. Lord, we love you. And it is only because you loved us first. That's it. That's what John tells us in 1 John. We love because you have first loved us. And Father, we confess the sins of pride and arrogance in our lives where in many times and in many ways we have just sought to help ourselves and to fix ourselves. But God, we come here as needy and, and unable people confessing that you're the only one that can help us and you're the only one that can save us from our sin and deliver us and give us victory. Father, would you help us to believe you? Would you help us to believe Jesus, help us to believe the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the gospel, that we are far more sinful than we could ever believe, but we are far more loved than we will ever know. Father, help us to believe, help us to trust you, help us to take heart, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.